Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Portions of this interview will appear in print on the NetSpy executive blog. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agent of influence. This is an episode in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security gurus, and it's a pleasure to have with me today, Matt Hartley. Hi, Matt. Hey, Nabil. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Matt is a 23-year innovator in cybersecurity, threat intelligence, cyber warfare, and information operations. Before founding BreachRx, he was a senior vice president of engineering at FireEye and a vice president of product at iSight Partners. Matt is a U.S. Air Force veteran and has a bachelor's and master's in computer engineering from RPI. So Matt, really excited to have you. Let's get started. Wanted to start off by talking to you about the current state of affairs and where we are in the world today. From your perspective, what are some types of attacks and vulnerabilities that people should really be worried about? Great question. So there are sort of three categories of attackers that I like to think about. The first is really criminal. The second is nation state. And then the third tends to be sort of the hacktivist groups. From a criminal standpoint, I'd say that we still suffer greatly across the world from ransomware attacks. And there's no one in particular to point out just that, you know, it seems even to this day that many organizations are really unprepared, have not kind of gone through an exercise or tested themselves to be sure that they can survive a ransomware event. And ransomware events are pretty bad. You know, for those that maybe haven't suffered through one, you know, you could be looking at a total enterprise shutdown of your entire business. Obviously, you know, that becomes more than just a technology problem. That becomes a business problem. If your business can't succeed at building something or manufacturing something or just generally making money and servicing your customers, then you're in deep trouble. So nation states are sort of always in the news in some ways. Lately, obviously, the SolarWinds attack has been top of mind for a lot of folks. And I think it just points out the capabilities that nations have around the world to be able to really target um, organizations if they if they choose to. What I mean by that is, you know, a dedicated, well-resourced organization that has national level resources is going to be able to get into a network. And and seeing the level of sophistication of uh, the SolarWinds attack just sort of points out, makes that more visible than it than it ever has been. Um, and I, I think there are a lot of attacks over the years that you could point to. And I, I tend to go back to one of the earliest ones that was public, which was Stuxnet. Um, and, you know, that's a great another great example of you know seeing. And that was early, but seeing the um, sophistication of these attacks. And so what can you do really to survive those? I mean, ultimately, it takes you making sure that your employees are um, aware. They have awareness of phishing attacks. They have awareness of maybe some practice from uh, exercises across the business. And from a ransomware standpoint and generally just a security standpoint, you know, I think a key aspect that a lot of organizations sort of tend to back burner because they're so busy is that idea of um, validating your security enterprise and ensuring that nothing has changed over time and ensuring that your organization will be able to be able to handle these different types of events, to be able to exercise, test yourself. And, you know, don't be shy to test and make sure that your backups actually work uh, in case a ransomware does occur. So a little bit of a long answer, but that's that's sort of how I see the world and, and the kind of attack landscape. 
You know, as you say that, something that comes to mind that's been on the news very frequently recently is the utilities and the Florida water incident, for example. I'm, if you're familiar with that, right, where someone from the outside managed to get through TeamViewer, a remote desktop control software, and they were able to change the levels of a certain chemical in the water for oversimplifying what, what actually happened. But, you know, as that's getting a lot of attention, it kind of shows you the weaknesses we have in certain areas uh, and certain verticals like the utilities. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, in, in that particular case, it's getting a lot of attention because it's so close to heart and close to home because it could impact you uh, on any given day. What are your thoughts on that type of a breach and how that happens? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I would say ultimately one definite lesson and, and thing I think the security industry has learned over the last 20, you know, 20 plus years is we're not just talking about kind of your general enterprise computing anymore. We, you have to secure an organization. That means you have to secure all aspects of it. And there, there are areas like you mentioned that are these operational networks, you know, the internet of things that uh, are vulnerable. You know, another good example of, of that would be a lot of companies build products. And so that product development process needs to be secure. Um, and that means engineers need to have that kind of secure mindset and really understand the vulnerabilities that are out there and really understand how to ensure that they don't accidentally you know, recreate a vulnerability that's well known or you know, do something that's not a good best practice uh, that ultimately creates a vulnerability in a product. Going back to your kind of operational uh, technology example, I mean, it's hugely scary, right? The number of systems that we've connected to the internet for good or bad over the years, and obviously the pandemic in many ways accelerated that for a lot of businesses, um, hopefully with good security uh, in mind when they did that. But given the speed, I suspect, you know, we're, we're looking at more of these in the future. And, um, you know, ultimately really understanding the operational processes around something like the example that you gave, understanding, okay, this system is now connected uh, uh, to the internet, what does that mean? What could an adversary do? What are the processes involved with that system? And understanding that it can change, you know, a mix or it can change a ratio of chemicals or, you know, for power plants, being able to, to you know, change the input or output or, you know, cooling variables or things like that and oil pipelines and other types of pipelines opening and closing. You know, our operational technology, I, I would say, is, is trying hard to catch up, but they have a ways to go from my experience before they'll be really uh, secure. Another thing you mentioned in your answer earlier was around the business continuity and disaster recovery processes that organizations need to have. From my experience, those are really just documents that companies have that have never actually been used unless they <laughs> reach some sort of a crisis. And it's rare that I find organizations that are fully prepared or have done you know, desktop simulations and, and scenarios to try and understand how they would truly react in a situation of crisis. And one thing that comes to mind is what happened in Texas recently with the electrical grids, right? How there's no power and no water. And what, what I thought about right away, and I would love your perspective on this too, is if they had done security simulations, they would have probably known their weaknesses and vulnerabilities to nat natural disasters and, and potential weather impact that could have on the systems as well. So having focus on security actually enables you to be better overall from a, from a quality availability perspective as well. But kind of curious what your thoughts are on that as well. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. I mean, uh, something that I've learned over the years and, and have recommended to many security leaders is 
start with or ensure that you're spending time with that business continuity plan. I mean, it's a great place to go to really understand the most critical systems that your business has. And with that, allows you to focus on uh, those systems from a security standpoint. And the sort of adjacencies, like you're pointing out, the, the advantages that you would get of just sort of maybe finding weaknesses in your general organizational processes is great. But something I've recommended to many CISOs is to go to that uh, BCDR plan and really understand the systems that are in there, understand how they're secure, understand and try to think like an adversary and understand how they might attack those systems. And then you can go and tabletop and practice, okay, well, if that system is compromised, does this BCDR plan adequately allow us to recover uh, that system or that process? All right, let's shift gears a little bit then. So in your career, the 23 plus years of your career, you've built a lot of technology that breaks into systems. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got started into building technology that breaks into systems and, and your background there and the type of things you might have done? Yeah, that's a great question, I'd say. I mean, going back, I guess, to uh, my first computer when I was nine, um, I just sort of had a natural affinity for it. And um, my uh, mom tells this hilarious story about me asking for um, these DOS books for my birthday when I was turning 10. And so I, have, I still have them today. And there's these two giant you know, running MS-DOS and advanced MS-DOS and you know, reading those things cover to cover and, and all that just sort of led to programming and it just led to getting a modem and BBSing and really kind of understanding how everything works. And so that, that sort of curiosity for how things work, I think also coupled with just the way I look at the world, you know, I tend to look at things and, and think about their kind of alternative uses or their alternative paths or, you know, in some, some ways, like how you could break them, how you could use them in ways that uh, they shouldn't be. And so, you know, I think that just sort of led naturally down a path where um, I became very curious about how to do things with, uh, you know, phone networks and computers that uh, perhaps weren't uh, necessarily all good. So taking all of that and using that for good in my career, ultimately you know, harnessing all that and really looking at, okay, how do adversaries operate? You know, how do we help our you know, nation and help you know, the good guys really understand how to find the true bad guys and understand how they operate and help people secure their systems more uh, thoroughly? Doing things like how do you red team and really expose how an adversary thinks to some security professionals that may have more of a technology mindset or more of an engineering mindset, where it's more about building something than taking something apart and trying to do something kind of nefarious with it. I think it's common just to say that we find people who are in our space have that natural inclination to figure out how things work. And as a transition, they naturally learn how to figure out how things break. But I have both of those books, by the way, that, that you're, 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 you asked your mom for. They're both in my library here, very familiar with them. And this, they were one of my first books, uh, other than this first book. The very first book I had was on C++. But yes, very familiar with those DOS books. So let's talk a little bit about the type of things you're doing today at BreachRx. I know you deal a lot with various security incidents. Can you help us understand better what the difference is between a privacy incident and a security incident and how they're treated differently? Yeah, definitely. I would say privacy is is sort of a fascinating area. A lot like security, it actually has roots way back into early computing. And as with everything, it, it you know there, it tends to have had kind of a up and down in terms of focus. And over the last few years, as we've had this you know continuous explosion of data and more and more people online, I think privacy is sort of finding its own again when it comes to you know focus on it. 
at BreachRx, we're really trying to help companies deal with incidents in general and understanding the aspects of that incident from both a privacy and a security standpoint. And privacy lately is being driven a lot by regulation. And because of that, there's uh, this sort of larger focus from a legal standpoint um, and, and larger sort of implications where uh, maybe just a few years ago, when you had a security incident, you wouldn't necessarily be thinking about that. So what's the difference between the two? You know, really, they overlap in many ways. Um, examples of, you know, most incidents that you can think of are probably both a security and a privacy incident. A nation state attack, like we talked about earlier, that maybe exfiltrates data, that's both because the data has been ex exfiltrated, that data has been exposed potentially. And a ransomware attack could be if that adversary has exfiltrated some of that data um, prior to, you know, encrypting systems or networks, again, uh, kind of impacts both. There are, you know, some examples potentially of security only incidents, uh, you know, things that come to mind, maybe denial service attack, something where the data is not really um, impacted per se. Um, and then there are lots of privacy incidents that are really only privacy incidents. Some people argue sort of uh, around some of these things, but you know, one idea might be uh, a lost laptop that had customer data on it. Maybe it's a security incident, probably more from a process standpoint, like the security people have to deal with it. But truly, if you think about it, it's, it's um, that customer data being exposed is really the, the kind of big impact. Then another big one, you know, last few years also is cloud computing and, um, you know, having a cloud vendor, per, for example, expose your data. And so if you think about that sort of, you know, there's this sort of two Venn diagram, like these two circles that sort of overlap like a Venn diagram, the number of privacy incidents is actually quite a bit larger uh, than the number of security incidents. And, uh, and so, yeah, we're, uh, we're at ReachRx, we're trying to, you know, help companies understand the implications of both and really help them plan for and recover from an incident if they have one. Is there any advice you would give these organizations to prepare or be better prepared for an incident? Yes, definitely. I think readiness from an incident standpoint comes from not only some of the things that we've already talked about today, but also from really understanding from a privacy standpoint, the obligations that your organization has, whether it's a regulation, for example, that may apply. So, so you know, in that, in that sense, many people don't necessarily understand, like if you have customer data that's been exposed, then the regulations of where that customer lives really apply, not where your company operates or where the data might be stored. So from that standpoint, if you have customer data and your customers are in all 50 states in the United States, for example, then uh, all 50 states' privacy regulations apply to that particular incident. So understanding obligations like that, understanding to whatever degree you can where your data is, understanding the contractual obligations that you might have, that uh, has also been a surprise to a lot of, uh, a lot of folks that your contracts likely have stipulations in them about um, notification timelines. So if you have a third-party provider, maybe you're, uh, they're one of your customers, uh, you may have, if they're big especially, like a big bank or a retail company or something like that, and you have some of their data, then um, they're going to want you to notify as soon as possible or immediately. And there's some contractual language around that in contracts. And a lot of folks don't have any of that organized. Um, it's, it's similar to what we talked about earlier, where companies have an incident and they sort of cross their fingers and they pay $1,000 an hour to you know, outside counsel and uh, you know, remediation firms in order to kind of figure out what they should be doing and then go do it. And that costs a lot of money. So just kind of thinking about it, putting, you know, capturing some of that information, um, having an incident response plan that isn't just a paper plan um, and, and actually practicing that as we've, as we've discussed, those are all things that a company can do to, to prepare and really save themselves a lot of heartache, a lot of pain and a lot of money. 
So you bring up a good point, and let's talk about some of those privacy regulations. There are various ones, right? There's many of them, and it's hard to kind of make sense of all of them. Can you share what they are and an approach that makes sense for organizations to use to make sense of it all? There are so many regulations I've learned <laughs> over the past couple of years about, I mean, uh, I think the big ones that everybody knows about are in Europe, there's GDPR. Um, and then here in the United States, one of the ones that has gotten a lot of attention in the last couple of years as well is California's laws that are known as CCPA. But ultimately, there are privacy regulations that define things like what you have to do when you have an incident, which government entity or entities you have to notify by when. Uh, and, and, you know, various aspects like that. And what's surprising to many folks that we talk to is there's laws all around the world that are already in place. China has a law, Singapore has a law, Brazil has a law they passed recently, Canada's on the cusp of a law. The other thing that is a lot of surprise to people is that in the United States, every state has its own law. There is no federal law. Um, and so, you know, from that standpoint, if you have data from U.S. citizens or people that live in the U.S., then you're looking potentially at a lot of pain if you have an incident because those laws are kind of all over the place. Some are very complex and some are very simple and open to a lot of interpretation. So, you know, from that standpoint, you know, one of the things that we talk about is that data privacy should be top of mind that you have to really understand, again, the regulations that apply to your business and uh, the types of data that you hold and really to understand the impact of those regulations and be sure because a lot of these regulations have timeframes that are very, very fast uh, after an incident. So the, the famous uh, GDPR 72-hour timeline is a great example where you have to notify um, after you uh, are aware that you have had an incident within 72 hours, you have to notify regulators there. Uh, California's modeled a lot of their law after, after that as well. And one of the interesting things that many governments are now doing is funding um, organizations through the fines that they levy. And so California's recent update to their law did that. Their their organization has um, the ability to fund itself through the fines that it issues. So that sort of creates a, a bit of a snowball effect. Uh, and, and so we, we predict that that's um, going to be a pretty painful for organizations. And then the other you know, thing I would add there is that a lot of these regulations stipulate maximum penalties that are pretty large. So, for example, GDPR uh, has a 4% uh, stipulation that can take 4% of your global revenue as the top fine. And what's interesting is a lot of other countries have adopted similar percentages. And so if someone has a horrific incident and it's shown that they don't sort of remediate with, uh, you know, sort of best practices, then they kind of, if you kind of add up all the percentages, it's looking like it's going to be around 25% of your annual revenue that these different governments are going to take. That obviously put a lot of businesses under. Um, and so from that standpoint, I think, you know, it's a, it's a great example of why data privacy is something that is on a lot of leadership's minds right now. So in that vein, what should organizations do when they realize that they have had a breach? I know there's a notification aspect to it, but also beyond the breach from a forensic side, what are some things they need to be thinking of as well? Great question. So what I would say is that first thing to think about is a bad response, a poor response is going to lead to all the pain that I just talked about, all these fines. And, you know, not only that, but obviously the kind of brand damage and customer loss and, and you know, shareholder lawsuits that we see with most, most um, breaches these days. 
So hopefully uh, organizations have an incident response plan that they can use um, to help guide them uh, when it comes to this. Because there's a lot of factors that come into play. For example, if you have cyber insurance, a lot of those insurance organizations require some notification uh, in order to be able to, some notification within some time frame in order to be able to make a claim. And the challenge with that is, is that a lot of insurance organizations will want to start to dictate your response. And so you have to make decisions about that. Similarly, when it comes to things like notifying your customers and notifying regulators, you really need your, your legal team involved. And a lot of security teams haven't necessarily practiced with that. And a lot of general counsel uh, members in organizations haven't necessarily been exposed to a lot of security incidents. So pulling in your, your inside counsel, your, your legal team, and really helping to um, work together to understand the implications of the incident is really important up front, especially because a lot of these end up in court. And so you want to be able to, to set up some legal privilege around you know that the the actions that you're taking as as part of an incident. So once you sort of get those sort of prerequisites done, um, then it then it it ultimately comes down to uh, how much you've you've prepared ahead of time. So if you if you've done that, then ultimately there's kind of two tracks that run. You have the security track where the forensics begins to occur, and hopefully you have the visibility into your security, um, you know, through your security infrastructure into the larger enterprise to really understand what type of attack it was and how to go and to see if other events like it have occurred. So for example, if you've had a phishing incident, you should go and check perhaps everyone else to see if they've also had the you know, same or similar phishing emails um, in your organization. So that's that's a simple example, but, but a pretty common one that a lot of um, organizations run through. And then in parallel, you have this sort of you know, privacy and regulatory process, uh, set of processes that, that start. And really the, you know, the way we talk about it at Breacher X is you have a shot clock. So you have this, you know, you, ha you may have more than one shot clock for all these different regulations and for all these uh, contractual obligations that you may have. And so ensuring that you're able to respond to those as you should and as you need to, and then ultimately understanding who to notify, making notifications. If it's a big enough breach, you may have to make a public statement um, and then, you know, sort of have, start pulling everything together in order to potentially deal with things like litigation and investigation from, you know, a, a regulator or shareholder law lawsuits, stuff like that. Awesome. That's really helpful and, and very insightful uh, as well. So if I can tie this back to your engineering mind of, of taking things apart and putting things together, would love to talk a little bit more about one of your hobbies of watchmaking and just collecting watches. Can you tell us a little more about what it is that you do with watches and your hobby there? Yeah, I'd, I'd say uh, one of my many hobbies always been fascinated by mechanical watches and just sort of uh, at one point a decade ago or so had some time and sort of dug in on it and you really just understood that a lot of uh, innovation in mechanical watches happened in the 70s and many of those watches are kind of floating around on places like ebay and they need a lot of love um but uh yeah basically started picking up used watches that were pretty beat up you can take them apart depending on the way they were made and the materials you can clean them up quite a bit so you can take a watch that you can't even see the face and the hands and clean up the dial and and cleaning the crystal, whether it's uh, plastic or glass, um, or replacing it if need be, you can just really resurrect a watch. And so yeah, I really you know took a lot of time and, and really understood then how watches are made and how they operate, and you know, played around with things like uh, changing the hands and changing the dial and, and things like that. So don't have as much time as I would love to, to to dig into that more, but ultimately there's a lot there, and I have a lot of different watches uh, that I've picked up and cleaned up over the years, and some pretty rare ones too. So it's 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 a lot of fun. There's so 
so much intricate detail with those. And to see nowadays the innovation there around 3D printing and 3D printing parts for watches and even 3D printing parts that you can't even get anymore because the manufacturer doesn't exist anymore. Some of that is just fascinating. Yeah, and I think you and I spoke about this too. I, I'm a I'm a big fan of mechanical watches as well. I don't have a big collection or anything, and I had to stop buying mechanical watches once I got my Apple Watch because I realized that if you don't wear your Apple Watch regularly, it kind of defeats the the purpose of, of having an Apple Watch. So I don't know if I told I don't remember if I told you the story or not. I was really excited when my first Apple Watch broke, then I thought I could <laughs> wear my mechanical watches again. And sadly, I got, well, not sadly, I should be appreciative. I got a gift of another Apple Watch uh, from someone right after my old one broke. So I'm, I'm using the new Apple Watch again now. But I do love the mechanical watches. In particular, just I'm fascinated by the, the amount of engineering that goes into such a compact form factor, right? And, and the fact that this has been happening since the 70s, um, is even more impressive um, and and how they all work. And if I do a lot of research and look up online, there are just some watches that have these movements that are fascinating. And the fact that they can accomplish that is is amazing. It blows my mind. I don't have that much of a design or engineering background to be able to come up with that. Another thing I was going to ask you is, have you seen the book, uh, A Man and His Watch? Uh, no, I haven't. Okay, so I, I recommend you look it up. So, you know, I, I'm not a big reader, but I lo like pictures. It's a book about famous watches worn by famous people and the story behind those people. I think there's a it's a series that there's called A Man and, a, and His Watch and A Man and His Car. Uh, so there's there's two of them. And I just love looking at, you know, it just shows you watches from some famous people you might know from when they were kids and they kept their watch and to ones that they, they were handed down to them by their grandparents or for generations in their family. And, and that sort of thing. I think you'll find that interesting. Yeah, I have uh, I have watches. You know, watches to me sort of relate back to special events like the birth of my kids, and uh, obviously when we sold uh, Eyesight Partners, our company there. But you know, one of the things that just quickly pointing out the um, intricacy and the uh, sort of amazing technology development. So before they invented quartz watches, they were trying to figure out how to get similar results without having that quartz technology figured out. And so they actually started for a brief period of time in the '70s using tuning forks inside a watch. And so one of my favorite watches is uh, an Omega with a 300 Hertz tuning fork inside. And so basically it's what you'd imagine like a real big tuning fork is. It vibrates at you know 300 times a second. And because of that, the watch actually hums uh, and the um, seconds hand, instead of ticking like a quartz watch does, um, or a mechanical watch, which ticks, but at a really high speed, it moves seamlessly uh, around the dial. And so it's a fascinating set of technology, very you know, sort of difficult to find nowadays that work because they're very sensitive. And so they break very easily. But that's uh, I think that's a great example, like you pointed out, of technology it didn't live too long because it was so delicate. But you look back at that and the sort of innovation, the innovative ideas that the watchmakers had to be able to put that together is pretty incredible. So that one you said you have, it's from a, it's from 75? Uh, around there, yeah. And it still works fine? No issues? It works great. I'm very delicate with it because it is sensitive, but I wear it around. And uh, yeah, as long as you you know keep it working and keep it you know, serviced, it, uh, it does great. Great. Well, Matt, thank you so much for your time and your insight and the conversation. This has been fun and I really enjoyed it. I'm sure our listeners will enjoy it too. Hopefully I get to see you in person soon now that the pandemic's coming to an end. Hope, you know, fingers crossed. Yeah, thanks again for having me. I really appreciate it. And yeah, I look forward to grabbing a beer or a coffee sometime soon. Absolutely. Well, take care. Thanks, you too. This has been an Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. 
Portions of this interview can be found in print on the NetSpy Executive blog. And please subscribe for future episodes of Agent of Influence at www.netspy.com slash agent of influence.